We are in the middle of a series called Text Message, and I've put that series on hold this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Table. We'll pick up the series again next week, Lord willing, but this morning, since our worship involves remembering Jesus with the bread and the cup, I want to highlight its importance today. The bread, of course, symbolizes his body that bore our sin and was nailed to the cross. The cup symbolizes his blood that was sacrificially spilled out for us. And Jesus told his followers, and if your faith and trust is in Christ alone for your salvation, then Jesus told you, as well as me, to remember his death until he returns again every time they eat and drink together. So it is our practice to uh, celebrate the first Sunday of every month as we distribute these elements and honor Jesus. Uh, I grew up celebrating communion once a month. And I asked, why? Why do we only do this once a month? And I was told that if we did so every week, then it would become an empty ritual and it would lose its significance. Well, I reject that thinking uh, entirely. Uh, Anything can become meaningless repetition, no matter how frequently or infrequently you do it. This is an issue of the heart. Uh, are we understanding and focusing on that, regardless of how frequently we do so? Ideally, I would like us to celebrate the Lord's table every Sunday. Uh, there are practical reasons why we don't do that, perhaps, and that was true in my previous church uh, it, because it involved thousands of people and five services and three different worship venues, so it was very difficult to, to uh, do uh, more than once a month. But uh, I think we are considering, uh, is that what the Lord would have us to do here, to celebrate more frequently the Lord's table? Because the bread and the cup are one of the very few symbols that we have. Uh, that, that scriptures have given to us to continue on, to remember the Lord. And symbols are vital. They represent and they remind us of what's important. Rings are a very important symbol in our culture and probably others as well. Uh, I never wore a ring when I was growing up and when I uh, went to graduate from high school. Uh, many of my friends got a high school graduation ring. I decided not to. I thought, well, I'm going on to, to university. I don't know uh, if I'm going to want, when am I going to wear this high school ring? So I decided not to invest my money in that. And then I uh, graduated from university and it wasn't um, prestigious university where all of you went. Uh, but uh, so, uh, like, uh, who wants to know that, that, about that? And I didn't have much money, so I didn't buy a ring for that. And then I got my master's degree. And uh, by then, I didn't really care whether I had a ring or not. And then I got a doctorate, and I didn't even think about it anymore, because then I had a more important ring. I had a wedding ring that was the symbol and the reminder uh, of, of my commitment to Amy and our life together. And I had these other symbols of diplomas uh, that uh, uh, remind me of all the money, I mean all the things that I learned, and, uh, and all of those, uh, since I didn't hang them on a wall, were in a storage uh, area in my office during the flood of Harvey, and uh, they're all stained and wrinkled now, just like me. So it reminds me of multiple things. Uh, but symbols are very, very powerful and important. They remind us to stay true. They remind us of what is vital. And so I want to point out to you three symbols that God gave to his people Israel today. And they are blood, uh, bread, stick, and stone, rather. Bread, stick, and stone. Uh, 
each one of these represents a truth that you and I need today and every day. And while this is ancient history, its significance uh, continues here and now. So, so let me point out to you that at the center of the nation Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a wooden box covered with gold, and it wasn't that big. So just to give you a, a, a rough idea, it was approximately four feet long, two feet high, and two feet wide. And the lid was likely made of solid gold, and God's presence was symbolized by that Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Israel was his people. He freed them from slavery in Egypt, and they were marching toward the land of promise that God had given to them, and they had God at the center, symbolized by that Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark wasn't sitting out in the open where anybody could gawk at it. Uh, The average Israelite never actually saw the Ark. Uh, It was inside the holy tent, the tabernacle, and there was this shielding curtain around the Ark, and so... um, When it came time to move it, Aaron, the high priest, went in, took down the shielding curtain and covered the ark with it, and then uh, uh, he and his sons put a leather cover over that, and next they spread a solid blue cloth over that, and finally they, they put the carrying rods into the ark, and a special group of priests picked the ark up and carried it as Israel moved forward toward the promised land. Wherever the people went, the ark was out there in front, the symbol of God's presence and power. On their journey to the promised land, there were about two million Israelites. And if you could have stood on a mountaintop and uh, looked down on this vast crowd, it would have been an awesome sight. The ark would have been in the center as the, the nation camped uh, the ta- inside the tabernacle. And uh, the nation organized around it, half a million to the north, half a million to the south and to the east and to the west. And as they moved through the desert, as they camped in the desert, it would have looked like a giant plus sign or a cross. So what was in this sacred box, the Ark of the Covenant? And if you saw the first Indiana Jones movie, you might scream, don't open it! Uh, But the New Testament does tell us, uh, give us some new information actually that we don't see as readily in the Old Testament, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 9, and it describes the the contents of the ark, three significant items, and I'm indebted to Colin Smith for some of his insights here, but Hebrews 9 verse 4 says, this ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tables of the covenant. So each one of these items told a story. They were visual aids for the nation. They were reminders of the priority that God had for his people. And so whenever uh, the the people looked at the cloth-covered ark, remember they're not seeing inside, they're they're just looking at this ark, they're reminded of God's place in their lives. So what meaning does this collection of antique items have for us? Why are these ancient relics mentioned in the New Testament, and why should you and I care today all these years later? Well, each artifact has a story, and I want you to hear each of these stories so you can understand how they connect to your life and mine. First of all, the jar of manna. The jar of manna. The people of Israel had escaped uh, slavery in Egypt by the power of God, and they're traveling through the desert on the way to the land God had promised. We read in Exodus chapter 16 that they ran short of food, and so they began to complain. They grumbled and played the blame game against Moses and Aaron for uh, saying, hey, things were better when we were slaves. They said, in Egypt, every night was like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and you've dragged us out here in the middle of nowhere to starve. Well, God provided for his grumbling people by sending bread from heaven, 
Manna, when they rolled out of bed in the morning, the ground was covered with these thin white flakes. Exodus 16 uh, says that when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. By the way, that's what manna means. What is it? Uh, that, that was the name they gave it. And this is the bread God has made it possible for them. And it tasted, the Bible said, like honey wafers, which sounds pretty good. And the only catch was that you had to gather it every single day except the, the Sabbath day. You couldn't store it up. Some people tried to store it up, the Bible tells us, but it didn't go very well. I think it went something like this. Uh, Mrs. Mr. Ephraim said to Mrs. Ephraim, hey, I, I want to sleep in on Monday. Uh, you go and gather the manna. And she said, I already do everything else around here. I've been trying to come up with a different way to cook this stuff. I've tried manna casserole, manna soup, manna manicotti, manna cream pie. Plus, I do all the dishes. And so Mr. Ephraim said, I give up. Okay, I'll go. Uh, tomorrow, I'll pick up enough for the whole week so we won't have to go out. And Mrs. Ephraim said, no, 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 we're told not to do that. And he said, who's to know? But the next morning, all the extra that was collected was full of maggots and smelled. Because manna was the daily reminder that they needed uh, to remember to daily depend on God. That, that was the significance of the manna. Remember, every day to depend on God. And many years later, people came to Jesus looking for satisfaction in life. And Jesus called himself the manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Everything else you use to satisfy your hunger will go bad. That's still true for everyone today. Anything else we try to satisfy ourselves with will go bad. It won't last. But Jesus satisfies completely and eternally. So the reminder is to daily depend on God. The second artifact was Aaron's staff that budded. This story begins in Numbers chapter 16. The people are still out in the desert. They're headed to the promised land, and God had provided food, and he provided water. Uh, and now he's telling them how to worship him. And he appoints a high priest, and that is Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron was to represent the people before God. And it had to be done just so. Well, a bunch of people didn't like that idea. They hated it. 250 of them, led by a guy named Korah, yelled at Moses and Aaron. They said, you think you're better than us? You're not better than us. We don't need you to worship God. Every single one of us is holy. Uh, you're no better than any of the rest of us. So who says we can only approach God this one way? We want to do it our way. So this became a big crisis in the people of Israel. The nation was divided. I don't want you to miss the problem here. The problem was both sides can't be right. Either you can only come to God the way that he says, or you come to God any way you want. You can't do both. Oh, finally, the Lord intervenes, number 16. says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ibrahim. So Moses tells the people to get away from the rebels. Because God's going to judge them for their rebellion. Now, this was a serious issue, and God was going to deal with it and show which side was right. And he's going to show that by if the earth opens up and swallows you in all your possessions, then you know you're on the wrong side. So get away from these rebels. So imagine Mrs. Ephraim coming home and saying, hey, I heard Moses preaching today, and, and I think we should move our tent. Well, what do you mean, move our tent? He says, I've been working hard all day. What for? Well, Cora lives right on our block here, and 
there's going to be some trouble, and we need to move. We need to put some distance between us. He said, don't be silly. I, it's almost time for Israel's Got Talent. Sit down. I, I, I've made a man of pot pie. Let's just enjoy here. Well, the choice is simple. Do you believe Moses is speaking for God, or do you do your own thing? God wiped out Korah and his followers. And then he did something else. He told all the, the, the leaders of all the 12 tribes to, to get a staff and to write their name on it. And he said this, The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout and I'll rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. The next day Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded and blossomed and produced almonds. So God was saying, there's only one way to approach me, and that's the way I choose, the way I say is right. Uh, I'm in charge. And that's still true today. The the lesson is remember to approach God on his terms, his terms, not my terms. God has chosen his high priest, and that priest's name is Jesus, and it's only through Jesus that we can come to God. He is the only access. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. When you put your faith in Christ alone, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection, you cross over from death to life. And the same God that made a dead stick blossom took the dead corpse of Jesus and breathed life into it. And when your faith is in Christ, your identity is changed to son or daughter of the living God. The only way to approach God is through a living Savior. Remember to approach God on his terms. The third item was the stone tablets. Uh, These are more familiar to us than the manna, probably, and certainly Aaron's staff. Uh, These are the Ten Commandments, created when God called Moses up to the mountain and gave him the law inscribed on these tablets of stone. The finger of God etched these instructions on how his people should live. Moses was gone for 40 days and People thought their leader had dropped dead or maybe run away, and they grew tired of waiting, and they decided, well, we don't need any laws. We can make up our own rules and figure out right and wrong on our own, but we do need a new God. And so they decided to uh, create one out of gold, and they threw a big party. And at that point, Moses came down the mountain with the tablets of stone, and he saw them worshiping an idol and having a drunken orgy, and he was so mad, he smashed the stone tablets. And then after Moses dealt with the sin of the people, God called him back up the mountain. Exodus 34.1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. I always feel guilty when I read those last, because it, it brings back bad memories. Something I broke. And those tablets were placed in the ark. It was a reminder that we must live God's way, that there's a life of holiness and order and obedience. Now, we can't obey the law of God perfectly. That's the whole point. In fact, the tablets show us how far from God's holiness we fall. That's why we need Jesus. And when our trust is in Jesus, we have his righteousness. And when we fail and fall, we can ask his forgiveness. We have the power to live holy lives. Uh, We can't claim to belong to him and live in unrepentant disobedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So if your faith and trust is in Jesus because you know, hey, I'm a sinner, I've failed, I've fallen, uh, then uh, as your love is in Jesus, then you want to live to please him. 
and, and obey Him. And these stone tablets uh, are the call to remember to live in obedience. A few years ago, a senior citizen, Nita Friedman, was chased by the Idaho police. Uh, police chief Mike Cutter saw her driving recklessly and turned on his lights and siren and, and went after her. And instead of pulling over, Nita pulled away. And so the police chased her through two counties. They finally had to put down spike strip. And she tried to keep going on three flat tires. But what was astounding and why this made news is because throughout the entire chase, she never broke the speed limit. In fact, once she stopped very politely behind a vehicle waiting for it to turn left. So while running from the law, Mrs. Friedman was determined not to break the law. And I see that as often how I tend to live. Obedience while running away. What does that look like? I offer worship while hiding sin in my heart. I pray for God's will to be done, and then I insist on things my own way. I claim to love God while holding on a grudge against someone. We need reminders that our faith must transform our thoughts and attitudes and behavior and priorities. I read a complaint this week by a couple who bought an $1,100 washing machine for their new house. And they had it installed by a licensed plumber. But as the, the homeowner said, it made the most horrific noise and walked all over the place. The banging and the vibration was loud and scary. So they had a general con their general contractor and the architect come back in after a month and take a look. And they were told that, hey, these uh, front loaders vibrate a lot more than top loaders. So just get used to it. But after a month, the, the general contractor had to agree that the vibration was excessive, and so he tried to brace the machine by nailing wood all around it. But this only made it bang even louder. Three months later, the manufacturer sent out a technician who found that the shipping bolts had never been removed from the washing machine. And that's why it was vibrating everywhere. Now, many of us come here today with our lives out of kilter, off balance, you might not know what's wrong or how to fix it. Maybe you're looking for satisfaction in the wrong things. Maybe it's more about the stuff you buy or the friends you make or the success you achieve or, or something else. And you've lost sight of who your true provider is. You've failed to look to God. To remember. To daily depend on Him. Remember the bread. Daily depend on God. Or, or perhaps you've stopped coming to God the way that He demands and you've begun doing things your own way, how you think best. Remember the stick. Approach God on His terms. Or, or maybe you've gotten away from obedience. God's voice has been drowned out in your life by the busyness of your schedule, by the stress that you're experiencing, by the pleasure or the pain or your desires or your agenda. Remember the stone. Live in obedience. When you neglect any of these three areas, your life is out of balance, it's noisy, it's unsettling, it's miserable. Now that's good advice, but it's not what's most important. You know, I, this week I, I just searched some articles that talk about the Ark of the Covenant has been found. Maybe you've seen those. They've been out for years. People have been claiming the Ark is like in a, in a temple in Ethiopia or it's... Um, 
been, been found under the Temple Mount in Israel, or it's uh, for sale on eBay. There's all kinds of things out there. And you could go down this wormhole, I invite you not to do that, of, of this ark being found and how important that is. Let me tell you, we don't need the ark. We, we don't need the ark today. We don't need the jar of manna. We don't need the staff of Aaron. We don't need the stone tablets. We need Jesus. You see, through Jesus, God becomes the center of our lives. That, that's how it all happens. And the writer of the Hebrews makes the point that all of those Old Testament symbols, they're all simply pointing to Jesus. He's superior to everything. Hebrews tells us that. His sacrifice is once for all. It says that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's the greatest high priest. He fulfills all the law. He satisfies all God's promises. He supersedes all the temple rituals. And Hebrews 10.14 says that by that one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love that verse. The one sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is all you need. And without Jesus... You have nothing. And so the whole point of worship is to celebrate that you have access to the Almighty God through His only Son. The point of worship is to remember, to reorient, to reprioritize your life toward Jesus. In turning your eyes to Him, honoring Him, obeying Him, you rebalance and shift the load. The songs we sing must point to Jesus. The prayers we pray, the readings of Scripture, the sermon, this table must all point to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. He is what you need. He's the bread of life that satisfies. He's the way. He's the one who saves you. He's the light to your darkness. Jesus, be the center. So, right now, you can recognize that. And I trust in our worship today, it's pointed you to Jesus. But right now, as we gather around this table, it should be pointing to Jesus. That your faith is in Christ alone. And if you have put your trust in Christ, that you have turned from all other means of self-salvation, earning your way, and put your trust and faith in Jesus alone, then you're invited to this table as well. As we eat and drink in remembrance of Him. It's not a ritual. It's vital to your spiritual life. Not because there's some spiritual magic in these elements, but because they symbolize what God has done for you. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus as the only Savior, the only way to God by His death and burial and resurrection, then these elements are a way to remember and to give thanks. In a moment, I'll invite you to take this bread and this cup. Don't do so lightly. Don't treat it with indifference. Prayerfully consider what God has done. There are tables at the front and a couple of tables in the back. And in a few moments, I would urge you to take this time to confess your sin and to declare your dependence on God alone and give thanks that by the one sacrifice of Christ, you have been made perfect forever. And as you eat and drink, you can say a simple prayer, Jesus, be the center. As you eat and drink, that, that's a simple prayer. Jesus, be the center. That's the reminder today to rebalance the load, to reorient your life. That through Jesus, God is the center. And so, in a moment, you can move to a table near you, and here in the front, you can go to either side of the table and take the bread and dip it into the cup. This is a multi-sensory reminder that we need. You realize that this is the preciousness of this symbol. 
multi-sensory in the sense that, that we see it, we, we can touch it and taste it and smell and be reminded of what God has done for us. Listen to the words of Scripture. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to stand now and whenever you are ready in these next few moments, go to a table near you and eat and drink in remembrance of the Savior.